Well, my first guest this morning is a critically acclaimed Booker Prize winning author who on Wednesday night next will be honoured with the Bob Hughes Lifetime Achievement Award at the On Post Irish Book Awards in a career that has spanned three decades, including seven novels, three short story collections, a non-fiction book about motherhood, numerous prestigious awards. So highly regarded as she is an author, the Washington Post has said of her, Anne Enright writes so well that she might just ruin it for everybody else. Anne Enright, good morning to you. Good morning, Miriam. Nice to talk to you. Yeah, lovely to chat to you. And listen, congrats on your award. You have received so many awards in your writing career. For you to win this prestigious award in your hometown, Anne, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, Ireland has been on such a journey the last 30 years from when I started writing to now. And it's such a flourishing, amazing, welcoming scene, which is not what you'd have said of it in the early, late 80s, early 90s. So it's it's a community night. It's the Irish Book Awards. There's some great people shortlisted and longlisted and all the rest of it. And I just think it's nice to be part of the celebrations, I suppose. And it's so well deserved. I mean, I know I think you previously said the first 10 of your 30 writing years. 12, the first 12 years of the worst, Miriam. (laughs) And that's what I want to say to my students, you know, and they say, oh, this is really hard. And I'm looking at them like, oh, you don't say like nobody's ever found that before. But yeah, that that, that you, you basically take a vow of poverty and difficulty and you sit at your desk and you sweat it out. But there's a kind of community of dedication to it one way or the other so it isn't easy when you're starting out but it actually as I go on I find each one easier in a different way you get more technically adept you know what what you know is that you're going to hit a wall and you just say okay I'll do something else for a while and the book will come back to me you get more confidence about the whole kind of process of it I was just going to say that, Anne, I mean, even winning this award next week, but also the fact you've won the Booker, does that kind of affirmation of your talent give you the confidence so that writing does become, I don't know, less stressful? Yeah, I mean, yes and no, it is lovely and it's kind of disturbing because it increases your readership. And so you're talking to more people as you're writing and sometimes you have to blank that out a bit and say, actually, no, I I need to keep the creative space a bit more personal, a bit more private. So I found that the lockdown, terrible as it was, the market disappeared and the readership disappeared and everything went away for a while. And it felt like, to me, very rejuvenating, actually. It was like returning to the early days where it's just the book and you. And it's basically the page is talking back to you. And so that conversation goes on over decades. And now I and the page have reached a point where we're able to converse more fluently, I suppose you could say. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And listen, to go back a little, Anne, but I mean, you grew up, I think, the youngest of five, didn't you? A family of five children. Uh, Yes, indeed. So does that mean it was difficult to have your voice heard or were you spoiled rotten or both? Well, I mean, you'd have to ask them, wouldn't you? (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm only getting this Lifetime Achievement Award to make them all feel old. Do you know what I mean? That's the great thing about being the youngest. I suppose you stick your elbows out. We had a fairly lively dinner table and you had to fight for your space and a, a bit of a jostle going on there with five siblings. And 
I don't know. Some people think that they're heard or not heard, independent of whether that's true. People sometimes hear you but don't agree with you. As I say to one of my children who says, you're not listening to me, I say, no, I am listening. I'm just not agreeing with you. It's a different thing. So, yeah, I, I suppose, though, in a busy household, there was always the seclusion and the solitude of the book. So you could be in a room... We'd all be doing our homework together in the same room and, you know, you could find your own personal space in the book, in the pages of a book. You'd sit there and get lost. And that was a little kind of circle for yourself. Is it true you'd read all of the children's section in your local library by the age of seven and Ulysses by the I... age of 14? <laughs> is this true? I had actually. I did. It is actually true. I was probably too embarrassed to admit to these precocities until recently. Yeah, no, I, I, there was a lovely upstairs room in Rathmines Library and I used to go up there before my bus and I read everything and just ran out of books really there. And I, I begged them for an adult ticket, which they finally gave me, and I, but they gave me no help or assistance. I sort of wandered through these shelves with these slightly smiling librarians going, off you go now, see what you want in there. And I couldn't figure it out. So... There was a kind of mystery and attraction in, in that library space. But, yeah, no, I also read Ulysses early, but I read other things early as well. You left school at 16. I mean, you did your leaving search so young at 16. And then you got an international scholarship that took you to a school in Canada for two years. How did that come about? And, and did you enjoy that time? Well, it just came about really simply because I was too young to go to university or barely old enough to go to university. So I was supposed to go off an au pair in Germany for a year. That was the kind of career plan at that time. And then two teachers in Louis in Rathmines pointed out this ad in the back of the Irish Times, which was for a United World College in Canada. So they did the interviews in Trinity College Dublin. And I got the scholarship. I mean, there were two scholarships a year from Ireland. And I went off on a transatlantic jet to <laughs> Canada, where I stayed for two years. And had I, I don't know if it was the best time of my life, but it was a really, really interesting, useful and expansive time. Yeah. And when you came back to Ireland, Anne, you know, did that Canadian experience, did it make you see Ireland through different eyes even? Yeah, no, coming home was hard, actually. Coming home to a place that had not changed as much as I had changed. Mm. When you have that kind of hothouse growth, which in late teenage years is a great time to, to for something like that to happen. So I had sort of really shifted in my sensibilities. And I was coming back to people who are changing more slowly than I had been. So that, that had its downside, really. I, I, trying to fit back into that space. Mm. And actually, I write about that a lot. I write about people coming back to Ireland. You know, in the Green yeah. Road, you have all these siblings coming back, trying to fit back into their childhood house and not knowing each other as well as they used to. Being utterly familiar with people, but not knowing what their life is like now. Yeah, really interesting. Now, you went to Trinity. And I did. You met your husband there. Tell us about the first time what he wrote down when he came across you. Oh, stop. You're too well researched, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> I did an audition in my first month in Trinity. There was a thing called the Freshers Co-op and the Freshers are the first years in Trinity. That's what they're called. And it was a cooperative play that we'd put on together. And the director was a guy called Martin Murphy. And I did an audition 
for a, a kind of mad housewife called Mrs. Brandywine. <laughs> and apparently what he put down on the paper when he saw me was one word and that word was bingo. So bingo with maybe an exclamation mark. Sadly, we don't have that piece of paper anymore. But you're still married. Uh, we are <laughs> still married. Yes, we are. Yes. No, we say it every day to each other. We say bingo. That's what we Aww. say when we wake up. Bingo. <laughs> yeah, no, we, that was uh, 40 years ago. He's also always, anything I've read, been very supportive, hasn't he, of your career, which is important if you're to be a success and a successful writer. <laughs> I, I look at, at, at young women in particular and they're planning on how it's going to be and they're going to say, how am I going to maybe plan a family and keep working? How am I going to be creative in one way or another? And I, I don't say the thing that's on my mind, which is what you need is you need to get somebody in your life who isn't jealous of your creative life. OK, mm. I, I, I don't know how to expand on that, but there is a kind of dynamic which I have ob observed where men in particular are not hugely pleased about their wives going off and having this elaborate sort of other life or going out and being successful in the world. Um, it seems to me that if you can, you need a big man who's able to manage all of those emotions or manage all mm. of those possessions and dispossessions and let you just get on with it without interference, you know. And interestingly, after Trinity, you turned to acting first, didn't you, Anne, rather than writing? I mean, was that initially, do you think, where your greatest interest lay? Well, I ran out of interest fairly fast in the acting thing. I was working more or less professionally for about a year after college. Uh, even then, I was running the statistics saying, actually, the one out of nine parts are, are for women and 95% of actors are unemployed and all the rest of it. I just couldn't see it. I couldn't see it necessarily working for me. I wasn't hugely interested in saying other people's words. And I was endlessly, not endlessly, but the few auditions I got were for things like The Maid. I was always, <laughs> I, I didn't have the kind of face, right, for the leading young, the, the, the girlfriend. So I was always going to be playing maids or comic parts or whatever. I thought there's more. There was a day in that year where I had two phone calls. Gary Hines rang me up personally and said, would I like a part in an upcoming production of Dracula in Galway? And that was, you know, an amazing breakthrough mm -hmm. for me. And somebody from RTE rang and said, would I like to work on a pilot for a show? So I did, there was one day when my life forked and I said, okay, I'm going to take the writing gig. And so there it was, yeah, for good or ill. Yeah, the way life... I made the right change. choice. I made the right choice. <laughs> and actually, in RTE, though, when you came here, you produced that superb show of the time called Nighthawks. Did you enjoy doing that? Well, it was enormous fun doing Nighthawks. I had that all that theatre experience and I had writing experience by the time I came to RTE. So I was working as a producer in telly which I was too young to know was quite a gig, you know. And we were working on this show called Nighthawks. And everything being creative and full of energy and full of ideas and being allowed to play a bit, I suppose, for the first while at least, it's, it, it, was, it was really quite a fiercely creative time. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, we were 
overworked and it was really hard and you're, you know, working all the hours and there was a lot of responsibility. And I finally, it didn't suit me. I think it's, it's, it's a hard life broadcasting. Respect mm-hmm. to you there, Miriam. <laughs> it, it takes a lot of work and dedication. So I stayed for six years and then I returned to writing full time. And what prompted that? And I mean, you spoke in the past, Anne, that I think after you left broadcasting and before you became the super successful writer, you had a bit of a breakdown, didn't you? Yeah, I, that happened actually while I was still in RTE. And and I think uh, people are much more alert now to, yeah. it was at the beginnings of, of the freelancers' lives, you know, uh, where freelancers are basically used and burnt up. And people have just become a little more aware of the stresses that are involved in all of that. But I was burning the candle at every end and I couldn't sustain it. And uh, I had quite a profound sort of, I think they would call it a burnout now, you know, where Mm. you just fall off a cliff or you can't move, basically. So that was a real moment of reckoning. And actually, I do return to it with gratitude, I have to say, now and then saying, well, I know how bad things could get if I'm in the wrong place, Mm. if I have the wrong priorities. So working too hard on something that isn't giving me the satisfactions that I need. So I turned to writing full time. Was that, though, a tricky thing to do? Because it takes a while to make it, doesn't it, Anne? There was, I don't know, five, I don't know how many years, right, of anxiety then. Am I writing the right thing? Is this good enough? Can I do it better? There was very little money. And the thing that changed all of that for me was having kids, which happened in my late 30s. And that meant suddenly I had to get over myself. I had to get (laughs) over all my doubts. And I just had to sit and just produce the work. And if it wasn't Proust, it wasn't Proust. That was the thing. I think I was too I was too ambitious. I was too high, high minded in what I wanted to do. So the immediacy and the practicality and also the joy of having children meant that I just didn't care so much about what the world would think of the books. I had more important preoccupations in my day. So the writing took a kind of second place and that second place was facilitatory rather than you know, it yeah. didn't put me into a decline. Thank God. And of course, you published three novels between 95 and 2002. But in 2004, talking about having children, lots of people are writing these books now, Anne. But you published a book of nonfiction entitled Making Babies Stumbling into Motherhood. And you were almost, for me, the very first person. It was kind of an antidote of sorts to all the books about the joys of giving birth. It was kind of really truthful. You described it as a make or break moment yourself at the time. Why so? Well, it was hugely, I don't know if there's anything more dramatic than, you know, entering the world or exiting the world. It's a life and death matter, really. You know, bringing Mm. new human beings onto the planet. And I wrote that book in part, I think, to keep the thread of my writing life going. I was really fully taken over by by the fact of the children and, and by mothering. So I thought, I can't write about anything else. I'll, I'll just write about that. I didn't really think anyone was going to read it, Miriam. It so the idea of coming back to it 20 years later and all those sort of fairly personal details <laughs> I outlined in the book... Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm more glad than sad that I wrote it. I wanted to make a record of the time. The way 
when you take pictures of children because they're changing so fast, I thought I have to write this down now or I'll lose it. You yeah. are way ahead of also, your time. There's a newer fashion now for, for, for women writing books about how terrible it all is. And I think that making babies is between the two, you know, yeah. of that sweetie perfectionism of the, the kind of mommy apple pie books. I mean, in, in the What to Expect When You're Expecting book, right, that I had, it was inherited, I think, from my, one of my sisters. But it was 20 years ago. It said, if you're depressed after the birth of your child, make sure you're up and with your makeup on before your husband leaves the house. <laughs> <laughs> and that will cheer you up. Of course, The Gathering, your fourth novel, which won you the Booker Prize famously, did it change much for you as a writer? You know, I was listening to Gabriel Byrne was doing it, his one man show and he said and, and he, he was, of course, much more kind of known and had that much more glamorised uh, film fame. And he said, you know, fame doesn't change you, it just changes everyone around you. So there is a kind of tug and pull one way or the other between the world and the book then for a while. And I did feel that the shift in the readership that the booker brought, okay, that I had to make use of that, that that was a real resource for me, that I was going around and I was meeting readers and liking meeting readers for the first time in large numbers. But that sudden shift from, from being relatively unknown to having a big readership, that was a big shift. I mean, you did previously, though, explore in a really interesting way, you know, the idea that creative work by women now in the past, that it wasn't maybe afforded the same space or time or oh, or yeah. importance as that of men. I mean, that was definitely the case. Um, are we still fighting yeah. that battle? It was such a so such an odd couple of decades for me figuring things out about being a woman and a writer at the same time. I remember I was put forward for something and I was very happy to put forward for it. And afterwards, someone said, oh, yeah, no, they needed more women. I thought, OK, so that was for me the beginning of the long insult <laughs> on yeah. being a woman writer. And it's kind of, um, you're you're fighting shadows. It's really an odd kind of fog that you're in, that no matter what you do, it cannot be seen just on its own terms, that you have to in some way be a, 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 be a woman doing it. Wow. And that makes it, that makes it less important or interesting in a different way. So the whole importance game seemed to be played out utterly in the masculine field that, and that the, you are excluded from that whatever that thing mm. is, being important. So I, I have very little interest in, in, in the capital B, capital I being important because I think it's a kind of creative downer in the long term. It, <laughs> it leads to a kind of lack of honesty, perhaps. Or uh, uh, anyway, I, I'm against it. And it's taken me a long time to, first of all, establish what is happening in the world, which is one of the things I did when I was laureate for, for Irish fiction. I looked at the reviewing culture in the Irish newspapers yeah. and I realised that the more important a newspaper feels itself to be, the less likely it's going to review women's work by women. Um, and that was something that Waking the Feminists saw in the theatre scene when they analysed yeah. statistically, without blame or without any accusations, statistically, 
what women and men were doing in the theatre. And it just thought the more money the theatre was given, the more important it's, it felt itself to be, the less likely there was to be work by women on stage. So that is reflected also in the literary space. So I don't know what that, I don't know what that is now, because we see now such an amazing flourishing of work by women. And you say, well, was that that sense of importance was actually tamping down the real stuff that was going to happen, which has been coming out in the last five, ten years. Yeah. And of course, I mean, I'm talking about people like Emer McBride and Sally Rooney. I'm here in, in Belgium with uh, Lucy Caldwell. I mean, the, the, there, are, the, the, there are names and names and there, the, the, there's no shortage of names to the extent where you say, well, you know, maybe the guys are feeling a bit put out by it all. And of course, you also now, you're the creative writing professor in UCD. Do you enjoy teaching, I suppose, and mentoring young writers? I actually do a lot. And I don't know if they enjoy it, but I kind of, I get a bang out of it, I have to say. I love seeing fresh work. I love the fact that it's not finished, that there there is an opportunity to bring it to its better self. I love the kind of courage and, and the freshness of the students. It really buoys me at the desk, I have to say. And look, congratulations once again on your richly deserved Lifetime Achievement Award, which will be, of course, presented to you next Wednesday night at the On Post yes. Irish Book Awards. And thanks so much for chatting to me and congrats on all your great success. Thank you, Miriam. Absolutely. Mind yourself. Thank you, Anne.